Section 9 of Sermons on Several Occasions, 3rd through 5th Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aviel Tolentino, Malabon City, Philippines. Sermons on Several Occasions, 3rd through 5th Series by John Wesley. On Knowing Christ After the Flesh. Henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we did know Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Second Corinthians 5.16 I have long desired to see something clearly and intelligibly wrote on these words. This is doubtless a point of no small importance. It enters deep into the nature of religion, and yet what treaties have we in the English language which is written upon it? Possibly there may be such, but none of them has come to my notice no not so much a single sermon this is here introduced by the apostle in a very solemn manner the words literally translated ran thus he died for all that they who live all who live upon the earth might not henceforth from the moment they knew him live unto themselves seek their own honour or profit or pleasure but unto him in righteousness and true holiness second corinthians five fifteen so that we from this time we that know him by faith know no one either the rest of the apostles or you or any other person after the flesh this uncommon expression on which the whole doctrine depends seemed to mean we regard no man according to his former state his country riches power or wisdom we consider all men only in their spiritual state and as they stand related to a better world yea if we have known even christ after the flesh which undoubtedly they had done beholding and loving him as a man with a natural affection yet now we know him so no more we no more know him as a man by his face shape voice or manner of conversation we no more think of him as a man or love him under that character the meaning then of this strongly figurative expression appears to be no more than this from the time we are created anew in christ jesus we do not think or speak or act with regard to our blessed lord as a mere man we do not now use any expression with relation to christ which may not be applied to him not only as he is man but as he is god over all blessed for ever perhaps in order to place this in a clearer light and at the same time guard against dangerous errors it may be well to instance in some of those that in the most plain and palpable manner know christ after the flesh we may rack among the first of these the socinians those who flatly deny the lord that bought them who not only do not allow him to be the supreme god but deny him to be any god at all i believe the most eminent of these that has appeared in england at least in the present century was a man of great learning and uncommon abilities dr john taylor for many years pastor at norwich afterwards president at the academy at warrington yet it cannot be denied that he treats our lord with great civility he gives him very good words he terms him a very worthy personage yea a man of consummate virtue next to these are the aryans but i would not be taught to place them in the same rank with the socinians there is a considerable difference between them for whereas the former deny christ to be any god at all the latter do not they only deny him to be the great god they willingly allow nay contend that he is a little god but this is attended with a peculiar inconvenience it totally destroys the unity of the godhead for if there be a great and a little god there must be two gods but waiving this and keeping to the point before us all who speak of christ as inferior to the father though it be ever so little do undoubtedly know him after the flesh not as the brightness of the father's glory 
the express image of his person, as upholding, bearing up all things both in heaven and earth, by the word of his power, the same powerful word whereby of old time he called them all into being. There are some of these who have been bold to claim that the great and good man, Dr. Watts, as one of their own opinion, and in order to prove him, so they have quoted that fine soliloquy which is published in his posthumous works. Yet impartial men will not allow their claim without stronger proof than has yet appeared. But if he is clear of this charge, he is not equally clear of knowing Christ after the flesh, in another sense. I was not aware of this, but read all his works with almost equal admiration. When a person of deep piety as well as judgment was occasionally remarking that some of the hymns printed in his Horae Lyricae, dedicated to divine love, were, as he phrased it, too amorous and fitter to be addressed by a lover to his fellow mortal than by a sinner to the Most High God. I doubt whether there are not some other writers who, though they believe the Godhead of Christ, yet speak in the same unguarded manner. Can we affirm that the hymns published by a late great man whose memory I love and esteem are free from this fault? Are they not full of expressions which strongly savor of knowing Christ after the flesh? Yea, and in a more gross manner than anything which was ever before published in the English tongue. What pity is it that those coarse expressions should appear in many truly spiritual hymns? How often in the midst of excellent verses are lines inserted which disgrace those that precede and follow? Why should not all the compositions in that book be not only as poetical, but likewise as rational and as scriptural as many of them are acknowledged to be? It was between fifty and sixty years ago that by the gracious providence of God, my brother and I in our voyage to America became acquainted with the so-called Moravian Brethren. We quickly took knowledge what spirit they were of, six and twenty of them being in the same ship with us. We not only contracted much esteem, but a strong affection for them. Every day we conversed with them and consulted them on all occasions. I translated many of their hymns for the use of our own congregations. Indeed, as I dares not implicitly follow any men, I did not take all that lay before me, but selected those which I judged to be the most scriptural and most suitable to sound experience. Yet I am not sure that I have taken sufficient care to pair off every improper word or expression. Every one that may seem to border on a familiarity which does not so well suit the mouth of a worm of the earth when addressing himself to the God of heaven. I have indeed particularly endeavored in all the hymns which are addressed to our blessed Lord to avoid every fondling expression and to speak as to the Most High God, to him that is in glory equal with the Father, in majesty co-eternal. Some will probably think I have been over-scrupulous with regard to one particular word, which I never use myself either in verse or prose, in praying or preaching though it is very frequently used by modern divines, both of the Romish and Reformed churches. It is the word dear. Many of these frequently say, both in preaching, in prayer, and in giving thanks, dear Lord or dear Savior. And my brother used the same in many of his hymns, even as long as he lived. But may I not ask, is not this using too much familiarity with the great Lord of heaven and earth? Is there any scripture, any passage, either in the Old or New Testament, which justifies this manner of speaking? Does any of the inspired writers make use of it, even in the poetical scriptures? Perhaps some would answer, Yes, the Apostle Paul uses it. He says, God's dear Son. I reply, First, this does not reach the case, for the word which we render dear is not here addressed to Christ at all, but only spoken of Him. Therefore, it is no precedent of, or justification of, our addressing it to him. I reply, secondly, it is not the same word. Translated literally, the sentence runs, Not his dear son, 
but the son of his love, or his beloved son. Therefore, I still doubt whether any of the inspired writers ever addresses the word either to the father or the son. Hence, I cannot but advise all lovers of the Bible, if they use the expression at all, to use it very sparingly, seeing the scripture affords neither command nor precedent for it. And surely, if any man speak, either in preaching or prayer, he should speak as the oracles of God. Do we not frequently use this inscriptural expression of our blessed Lord in private conversation also? And are we not then especially apt to speak of him as a mere man, particularly when we are describing his sufferings? How easily do we slide into this? We do well to be cautious in this matter. Here is not a room for indulging a warm imagination. I have sometimes almost scrupled singing, even in the midst of my brother's excellent hymn, that dear disfigured face, or that glowing expression, drop thy warm blood upon my heart, lest it should seem to imply the forgetting I am speaking of, the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Although he so humbled himself as to take upon him the form of a servant, to be found in a fashion as a man, yea, though he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, yet let it ever be remembered that he thought it no robbery to be equal with God, and let our hearts still cry out, Thou art exceeding glorious, thou art clothed with majesty and honor. Perhaps some may be afraid lest the refraining from these warm expressions, or even gently checking them, should check the fervor of our devotion. It is very possible it may check or even prevent some kind of fervor which has passed for devotion. Possibly it may prevent loud shouting, horrid and natural screaming, repeating the same words twenty or thirty times, jumping two or three feet high and throwing about the arms or legs, both of men and women, in a manner shocking not only to religion but to common decency. But it will never check, much less prevent, true scriptural devotion. It will rather enliven the prayer that is properly addressed to him who, though he was very man, yet was very God, who, though he was born of a woman to redeem man, yet was God from everlasting and world without end. And let it not be thought the knowing Christ after the flesh, the considering him as a mere man, and in consequence using such language in public as well as private as is suitable to those conceptions of him, is a thing of a purely indifferent nature, or, however, of no great moment. On the contrary, the using this improper familiarity with God, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Governor, is naturally productive of very evil fruits, and that not only in those that speak, but also to those that hear them. It has a direct tendency to abate that tender reverence due to the Lord their Governor. It insensibly damps that speechless awe which dares not move, and all the silent heaven of love. It is impossible we should accustom ourselves to this odious and indecent familiarity with our Maker, while we preserve in our minds a lively sense of what is painted so strongly in those solemn lines. Dark with excessive bright his skirts appear, yet dazzle heaven, that brightest seraphim approach not, but with both wings veil their eyes. Now would not every sober Christian sincerely desire constantly to experience such a love to his Redeemer, seeing he is God as well as man, as is mixed with angelic fear? Is it not this very temper which good Dr. Watts so well expresses in those lines, Thy mercy never shall remove from men of heart sincere. Thou savest the souls whose humble love is joined with holy fear. Not that I would recommend a cold dead formal prayer, out of which both love, desire, hope, and fear are excluded, such seems to have been the calm and undisturbed method of prayer, so strongly recommended by the late Bishop Hoadley, 
which occasioned for some years so violent a contest in the religious world is it not probable that the well-meaning bishop had met with some of the mystics or quietists such as madame guillon or the archbishop fenelon of cambray and that having no experience of these things he patched together a theory of his own as nearly resembling theirs as he could but it is certain nothing is farther from apathy than real scriptural devotion it excites exercises and gives full scope to all our nobler passions and excludes none but those that are wild irrational and beneath the dignity of man but how can we account for this that so many holy men men of truly elevated affections not excepting pious campus himself have so frequently used this manner of speaking these fondling kinds of expression since we cannot doubt that they were truly pious men it is allowed they were but we do not allow that their judgment was equal to their piety and hence it was that their really good affections a little exceeded the bounds of reason and led them into a manner of speaking not authorized by the oracles of god and truly these are the true standard both of our affections and our language but did ever any of the holy men of old speak thus either in the old or in the new testament did daniel the man greatly beloved ever thus express himself to god or did the disciple whom jesus loved and who doubtless loved his master with the strongest affection leave us an example of addressing him thus even when he was in the verge of glory even then his concluding words were not fond but solemn come lord jesus the sum of all is we are to honor the son even as we honor the father we are to pay him the same worship as we pay to the father we are to love him with all our heart and soul and to consecrate all that we have and are all we think speak and do to the three one god father son and spirit world without end plymouth dock august fifteen seventeen eighty nine end of section nine recording by avial tolentino malabon city philippines